Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Futurati podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Lynn Alden. Lynn Alden began her career as an electrical engineer in the aviation industry before pivoting full-time into investment. Featured across major media and popular podcasts, Lynn focuses on macroeconomic research for retail and institutional clients, and in recent years has taken a progressively deeper look at digital assets such as Bitcoin. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Lynn Alden, thanks so much for coming on the show. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for having me. So you have this really interesting background. You were in aviation engineering for a long time. You pivoted to investment full-time uh, in recent years. You've, you've been taking a more serious look at digital assets. And I noticed in your biographical materials, you said you've been an avid investor since you were a teenager. So I'm really interested in kind of the story, how you became, uh, how you made your way into finance, what, what that looked like over the course of your life. Yeah. So for whatever reason, when I was a kid, that was kind of my, one of my first passions. Uh, I kind of had these dual passions. One was investing and one was I was just interested in science and, science and technology from a young age. Um, and so I started, you know, when I was a little kid, I invested in, say, precious metals. Then I moved into equities, uh, uh, especially like technology equities. Um, but when, when it came time to go to university, I decided to go the engineering route rather than, you know, going to finance. Uh, I felt that I had better career prospects and uh, you know, I'd already learned a lot about investing, but I hadn't learned a ton about technology. And so I wanted to go into that space. Uh, and so I, I, I went that whole route. Um, I went into uh, automation at first, but then uh, we got hit by the, the uh, global financial crisis. And so the company I was at, like I was interning there and they canceled their whole internship program. Wow. They were just trying to stay <laughs> solvent. Uh, and so that kind of, uh, I had to look for another job and I ended up in the uh, aviation industry. Uh, specifically like simulation research. Um, wow. And so just by, by matter of luck, uh, it kind of changed my career path. I went into that instead. Um, and I was there for uh, over 10 years in kind of a different role. Started out as a design engineer and then moved into engineering management. So I went and got a, a master's in engineering management, focused on engineering economics and finance, things like that. Um, and so I, I kind of shifted into a, more of that managerial finance role. 
And at the same time, I had, you know, from the kind of the beginning there, I started a, uh, a blog on, on uh, stock analysis. Uh, I kind of kept my passion alive, especially, you know, during the global financial crisis when I was in college, uh, because I saw that all these, all these uh, assets were a lot cheaper. It kind of re-sparked my interest in getting back into investing. Uh, so, I kind of so had when, that. So when did you start paying attention to Bitcoin then? Uh, so Bitcoin's interesting because Bitcoin, I, I originally heard about it around 2010. Um, uh, but, and I thought like, I should probably get into that yeah. and then just didn't, right? Cause <laughs> and it was like, back then there were a lot of frictions, right? So right. it's not easy. It wasn't just, you couldn't just go to Coinbase and buy some. I mean, there's a lot of frictions. So every time I would get interested in it, I'd be like, that sounds neat. And then I just kind of didn't do it because it's, you, you had to get through the friction to get into it. And then I would see it again. I'd be like, okay, now it's like $600. And I'm like, I don't really know how to price it. And so it wasn't really until 2017 when it had started, uh, started to have a run up that I finally, uh, you know, sat down and really figured it out, took the time and, and understood the difference compared to other protocols. And so, yeah, ever, ever pretty much ever since the you know past 10 years, I've been in that dual role of, of investing in engineering. And eventually I left the engineering full-time to, to focus on investment research full-time. When did you make your first investment? Uh, the first stock would have been back around 2004. I bought Adobe stock. Adobe. Uh, so how old were you? I was. I would have been around 16 then or so. Okay. What, what? So this is just a long-standing interest of yours. You didn't have an uncle or not that was into it. You just always thought stocks. That sounds cool. It just kind of came out of nowhere. I think actually one of the things was so when I, when I grew up, uh, we were impoverished. Uh, and then I, I, when I was with my mother and I went to go live with my father and for whatever reason, I became like a saver, I think because of that, I had experienced, uh, you know, some degree of homelessness as a kid. And then when I was, it had that degree of stability, I, I think I just became like a saver and interested in exponential compounding. Right. And so I think, I think that might've triggered it. I think that's a common dynamic. I, I have sort of a similar background as well. And and my brother, myself, my dad, we're all pretty just interested in this idea that you can move numbers around and generate way more money than you could ever earn. Even being a 10x engineer, it's not going to compare to, to what will happen if you can time the market even a little bit. Exactly. And, and just, and not even, it's part of its timing, but it's also just kind of delaying gratification in some ways, putting capital to work and letting that compound it even like just, you know, five, 10% a year for decades. So, and, and a lot of people just kind of don't start till later, but I kind of saw early on that if you start when you're a teenager, it, it just, it snowballs from a much quicker, a much earlier base. It, it will grow, right? I am a, I, I'm not much of an investor myself, but I've, I've sort of always been interested in it. So I was just curious in preparing for this uh, interview as to what a, a day looks like. So I was listening to a lot of your podcasts. You say things like, I'm taking a careful look at the energy sector, or I'm bullish on Bitcoin, or you referenced earlier that in 2017, you sat down and looked at all the protocols. So what, what's a day for Lynn Alden research look like? So a typical day starts out with kind of doing a broad check on the market. So just, you know, basically just looking at what are, what are equity markets doing? Uh, what are cryptos doing? What are bonds interest rates doing? Uh, were there any kind of uh, big reports that came out like an inflation report or something like that? Uh, so I kind of do that broad checkup. Uh, and then I usually dive into trying to learn more about something specific. It could be, you know, I want to I want to dive into Bitcoin. I want to dive into Ethereum. I want to go into energy stocks. I want to go into home building stocks. I want to look at, you know, SaaS cloud stocks. Something, you know, some sort of sector or industry, and I kind of pick that apart. And that could be part of an article. Like I might be writing an article, 
And I usually have a couple articles that I'm writing at any given time. So I kind of chip away at them over time. Or it could be that I'm I'm just doing preliminary research to kind of figure out what what sector or what market or what asset class is interesting. I, I look at, for example, commodities, I look at equities. So there's kind of that part of it is keeping that broad overview of like all these different things going on, kind of like a big dashboard uh, and kind of just different things catch my attention versus then taking hours to go you know, deep into something. And then, you know, I might invest in it or I might kind of you know, say there might be certain catalysts that I say, okay, I learned it, I learned a lot about it. I want to wait until these catalysts kick in and then I'll kind of leave it there until the, the situation emerges. So we're going through this massive transition time here. What are, what are some of the red flags that jump out at you at this moment? Uh, you mean in the economy as a whole, like, a, like, uh, right, right. So I think a couple of things, one, so the biggest red flags that I see it, it, it depends on different countries. So one is that I, I think we're transitioning from a disinflationary period to an inflationary period. Um, and that's a view I've had for a couple of years before we started getting these rather high inflation prints. Um, and part of that has to do with the expansion of the money supply. Another part has to do with, with the commodity cycle that the world goes through. So we go through these periods of having commodity overabundance where they're super cheap. And, and then you go through other periods where because they were cheap for so long, nobody invested in them. Right. Uh, and then, they, then we have shortages and then they're expensive again. And people have recency bias. So they often assume that you know once, once commodities are cheap, it's like they've, we've, we've solved the commodity problem you know, we're never going to have inflation again, and then we we eventually have shortages. So one is the whole inflation dynamic, which I think is a, a global issue, and it won't be a straight line, but I think it's going to be a, a bigger issue this decade than than last decade, which was very disinflationary. Another one is kind of just rising tensions, uh, kind of uh, between people. Uh, you know, lack of trust in institutions, rising uh, in the United States in particular, rising wealth concentration, uh, and just kind of like. The, the financial system sort of not working for many people. Um, and there's there's a book written a, a while ago, back in the 90s, called The Fourth Turning. And it kind of shows that these generations go through these cycles. And every fourth generation, usually it's like the, all the institutions were built like four generations ago. And they're kind of decaying from their own entropy. Like they're, they're built in a different time. Uh, they're just not, they're now they're like shadows of their cells. People lose trust in them and you generally need to tear them down and rebuild them. But that is of course a very troubling time. And so that, that's kind of that, like a historian wrote that book and it's been eerily accurate. I mean, he called things that happened over the next, you know, 25 years kind of eerily uh, close, but you know, a lot of that's qualitative. Whereas for me, I, I, I kind of tend to think quantitatively. And one thing I notice is that I, I kind of look at these long-term debt cycles where debt accumulates until it's a, a major problem. And all those big debt cycles occur during those fourth turnings. So that's kind of the quantitative background to that more qualitative generational cycle theory sort of thing. That's kind of the social view compared to the quantitative view. And so we're, we're kind of going through this long-term debt cycle, fourth turning, whatever you want to call it. And, and so I think combined with these other factors, that's, you know, it, it's not going to be easy, I don't think. Yeah, I just wrote an article on um, the, the, the coming collapse of the income tax system. And I, I, I focused in on four points about the, the people quitting their jobs, the great resignation, about the focus on privacy 
and how the government's not good at maintaining this privacy, although they're they're demanding more and more information. It's very intrusive how the tax system is. And then as as we add more elements to it of um, of cryptocurrency and the metaverse into it, that there's simply it's going to become too complicated for anybody to manage the system that has suddenly grown into this. Um, I don't know, this incestuous self-feeding behemoth, yeah. This yeah. <laughs> tangled. Um, and, and so I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. I think privacy in general is also a really big theme to watch this decade. And it, it manifests itself in different ways. I mean, in, say, the United States, one of the issues, there's there's kind of corporate surveillance where every, everybody gathers your data. You don't even know who has it anymore. It's just everywhere. And then it gets stored in these big databases. Those inevitably get hacked by somebody. Um, right. Even even ones you didn't sign up for, like the credit rating agencies. Like You don't have an account there. They just gather it, and then they get hacked. Uh, and then it's just out there. Uh, even government institutions, like uh, you know the, the federal government got hacked. It was a few years ago, and... Something like you know, 20 million federal employees, contractors, all of their data was just like I, I think I think they ended up thinking it was a Chinese that might have hacked it, but basically all that data is out there now, and that that included it was like held unencrypted, um, and so companies don't invest a lot in cybersecurity. They're starting to a little bit more, but it's it's still it's it's easier to break in than to defend it forever, right? It only takes one hack to get you know these big honeypots of data in many cases. Uh, and then you have in other countries, like say China, for example, then you have more of that kind of surveillance state. So it's not just corporations gathering the data, it's, it's the government can kind of use big data, do this whole surveillance thing, kind of track everybody's spending, uh, that you know, big data can go around and analyze it, uh, cause human rights issues. Uh, and so I think that from both the government standpoint and corporations is probably going to be a big theme this decade is people wanting to retain you know their own privacy, uh, you know, their own data, uh, and and to kind of these big questions on who can get our data, how can they get it, how can they, how can we make sure they don't, don't just hack it and then it's, it's out there forever, and things like central bank digital currencies, cryptocurrencies, the these are whole nother vectors to to manage in addition to all the things we're already managing for this whole topic. Yeah. So to stick with the theme of privacy, to what extent are you bullish on cryptocurrencies being a solution to that problem? And are there other technologies you're looking at? But we, we've interviewed Irene Ng, who is the CEO of DataSwift now, and they're setting up these private servers that allow you to exercise a great deal more control over who sees your data and under what context. And then we also had uh, Radhika Iyengar, who is trying to do something similar with healthcare data on the blockchain. So I know that the blockchain is kind of an obvious use case. Per, Managing privacy is kind of an obvious use case for the blockchain. Other people are looking at other approaches. So given that you think this is really important, what are the technological solutions on offer and how do you evaluate them? Yeah, I think that's one of the solutions out there. And it depends, I think, on on what you're after specifically. And so, for example, if you if you focus on, on Bitcoin, the original one, uh, it's not the most private blockchain, right? So right. It, it's got a lot of, you know, it, it's rather transparent. Uh, and what that solves is more like, uh, you know, it, it's it's difficult to censor, right? right? So you can you can pay something through all these uh, points of friction, uh, and it's of course it's very hard to do a fifty one percent attack on it because it has this, you know it's kind of the most robust system, the simplest, uh, the most the fewest attack surfaces, uh, and so that's kind of this like tank like payment infrastructure, um, and and things like Lightning and and things like Taproot, the up updates they do that it seems to be going in the direction of getting slightly better privacy over time, even though it's not one of its uh, initial. Uh, you know, most optimized areas. Um, you could 
could start to see, you know, because so back in web one, there was kind of this rather decentralized system. Then web two comes along and we kind of, you know, started collecting everything into these hubs and them offering us these very conven convenient services in exchange for us giving up all this privacy and then, then, you know, just monetizing it. Uh, so we become the product in exchange for us just getting convenience and, and, and useful technology and communication platforms. And the idea of web three and these various technologies uh, is one, it's kind of a rebranding of crypto just because crypto, you know, has kind of a, a branding issue in some cases, you know, crypto kind of, it's, it means like secret, right. it's, you know, so at web three is kind of like, uh, it's kind of rebranding it as a, as a technology play. And, but the general idea is to de decentralize it again and to retain kind of your own access credentials, your own, your own information. Um, and it's still like, it's really early stages. So it's, it's still unclear which, which platforms are going to win that uh you know is it going to be kind of this multi-chain thing is it going to go you know uh you know lightning on bitcoin can do a lot of those web3 things kind of like using your 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 private key your credentials to log on to these things and retain access so that it can solve two things one you can keep more of your own you're not giving up your data uh, to the same degree uh and then two um you know you're you're less prone to uh, being blocked by some sort of centralized third party. You can go peer-to-peer -peer around problems. You can route around these points of frictions. Um, but of course, there's early stages of regulation. Many of them look like, many of them outside of Bitcoin look like securities. They pass the Howey test and therefore they're, they're you know, they can be viewed as securities by the, the SEC. Uh, whereas something like Bitcoin, because it didn't raise capital, doesn't pass the Howey test. It's more like a commodity, a digital commodity. Um, and so there's all these things that have to work through in terms of regulation, taxation, uh, and, and and countries are, are grappling with that. And it's definitely gotten big enough now that countries have to articulate a, a digital asset policy uh, before they could ignore it. And now you see, for example, India would come out and say, we're, you know, we're banning it. And then they say, okay, we're, not, we're not banning it. That that didn't hold up in court. <laughs> right, and right. then we're going to try to pass this bill. And then we're going to pull it back. And it's like, well, we, you know, there's there's all the different interests are kind of grappling together to figure out what this means for so many different industries. So with uh, the area of regulation, uh, there's a lot of speculation about uh, who's going to do what. Do you have some thoughts on what shape and form the first level of regulation that comes in on on Bitcoin and the rest of the cryptocurrency, um, uh, the the entire industry. Do you do you have some sense as to what that would look like? Well, so there's already been some phases of it, and that's you know, for example, the the earlier ones start with with know your customer and anti money money laundering laws. So the different exchanges, if they if they take your money and sell you Bitcoin. They record that. They send it to the IRS. They send it to all these different agencies. So that gets actually back to the whole the whole privacy uh, question all over again. Um, and then two, you know, there's a, basically there's kind of been this period of regulatory arbitrage where this technology moved faster than regulators' ability to make laws about it. And like for example, the 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 Howey test, it is like the the main law to determine whether or not something is a security is is like. You know, I think it's like 80 years old or something like that. It's, it's written in a different era. And so you have these these tokens that in many ways are securities. Sometimes there's a gray area. If something is like almost a security, is it not quite, it's not quite as clean as it used to be uh, prior to this technology existing. And one of the downsides, one of the kind of the scammy aspects of the industry is that, you know, VCs and, and kind of certain actors can get faster access to liquidity by dumping things on the public. 
Uh, and if they're not labeled as securities, there's less, you know, you know they, they don't have to disclose as much. Whereas if they are labeled as securities, they have to disclose more. And so basically these exchanges can sell tokens to the public that you know probably should be labeled as securities, but but don't get labeled as securities. And and the SEC is kind of trying to get a handle around that and have more kind of consistent regulations. Like if you were selling a security to someone, there's certain disclosures, uh, and and basically anything that in the in that space that meets that test would probably have to have those similar disclosures. Now something like Bitcoin and some of the hard forks are not securities, so they don't have to do that. But any of the ones that kind of had like an initial coin offering things that brought in capital and then use that capital to develop the platform is more like a security. So that's one. And then two, stable coins, right? So <clears throat> stable coins have you know been around for years now. And one of the challenges is that the whole point of a stable coin for people that, you know, I think most people know at this point, but is that you have a, a, a pool of collateral, at least for custodial stable coins, then you issue tokens against it. People can trade around those tokens. And of course, there's questions around the, the quality of collateral. What kind of collateral do you need to back up the token? And there's kind of two ways to think about it. One is if you, if you look at a typical bank, you need to have more assets than liabilities because your assets are not all risk-free. You have some risk-free assets like bank reserves and treasuries, but then you have other riskier assets like bank loans or, or you know, uh, uh, things that can have nominal loss. And so you need a capital buffer. Uh, with stable coins, you've had this environment where they have you know, they do audits and things like that. And they say, okay, it has as many assets, it has liabilities, but then you look at the list of assets and they're not all risk-free assets. They're, they're prone to volatility and loss in some cases. Um, and yet there's not necessarily a capital buffer. So you would either generally need to have all the assets be risk-free. So things like T-bills and cash, if you're going to have a one-to-one you know, cash to, to liability ratio, or if you're going to use a, a bigger mix of assets, you need to have a capital buffer like a bank. And so the Treasury has been looking into having stable coins only be issued by bank entities um, or, or you know, have different collaterals. So you've already seen some of the big stable coin providers uh, that are more kind of trying to be the regulated approach have shifted their holdings over to T-bills and cash to kind of get in line with having you know, the appropriate collateral for their, their token. So I think, I think stable coins and kind of separating what is a security, uh, those are kind of two big regulations, I think, coming up over the next couple of years. What, what do you think is the proper way to try to regulate an environment like crypto? So you mentioned that the Howey test is 80 years old. I recall that it took the SEC years to decide whether or not Ethereum was a security because it sort of straddles the line between just a technology platform, a, a computational platform, and, but there are these tokens that have a nominal monetary value. And so if you were in charge of trying to regulate this environment, how would you approach that? How would you try to do it such that you minimize the scamminess and the sort of fly-by-night cloaks and dagger uh, aspects of the crypto ecosystem with not overburdening it such that it's not possible to innovate anymore, which is obviously another problem. Yeah, it's a good question. And the funny thing is, so Ethereum is as old as it is, the SEC is still not 100% clear on whether it's a security. <laughs> so so the, the prior chairman uh, said an opinion, is it not like an official statement by the SEC? The current chairman seems to have a somewhat different opinion. The idea there is that when it was created, uh, it does pretty clearly meet the Howey test. It like, pretty much seems to be a security. Uh, the current chairman has said that uh, before he was chairman of the SEC. Now, the big question there is whether or not over time it became no longer security. And that's kind of a uniquely crypto phenomenon because in prior eras, if something's a, if something's a security or it's not, 
Whereas if you start out centralized enough and you raise capital and you you build this platform, you're security. But then over time, if you have, say, a diversified development hub, decentralized, can you get enough decentralization that you're no longer security anymore? You're no longer some sort of central hub working on it. And so one, they'd have to define a threshold for what kind of what level of decentralization you need to no longer be a security. Um, and so that's one. I think overall, they need to have, you know, you can also launch, you, you can have stocks trade as crypto tokens, for example. You can have a token that represents a share of a, of a, of a stock, right. right? So you can even have a blending between kind of legacy securities and crypto securities. With colored coins. And so I th- yeah. And so I think they need to go back and just kind of streamline this whole thing. And there has been, I think, reasonable attempts. Like they do like working groups. They have the president's working group. Well, they'll try to, you know, there's the SEC. There's people that regulate commodities. There's, you know, there's, there's, there's you know, uh, financial sec- uh, you know, crime regulations. There's all these, all these entities that have to come together. And it goes back to our prior point about fourth turning. We have this big kind of legacy buildup of all these different groups, and they might not be the, the best ones to regulate this. We might just need to kind of overhaul things. And so I think they kind of have to have, you know, like a, 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 a pull, pull in people from all the different groups and just figure out something that is consistent so you don't have regulatory arbitrage between, you know, certain stock like stocks have to follow securities laws and crypto tokens don't right so that's not good but then if you are overburdened with it like you point out then it can stamp out innovation so you need to have something that's both uniform and light enough that it you know it doesn't stifle things and i think that you just have to pull from a lot of different sources and kind of you know have like a manhattan project of, of sitting down and thinking about this and and you know having people from all the right fields and then putting something in place consistent are you hopeful that they'll be able to do that? Because the government doesn't exactly have a long track record of getting projects like that across the finish line. The Manhattan Project and possibly the moon landing are the only two that I can really think of. And that's two in, you know, 200 and whatever, however many years. So it doesn't strike me as very probable that that will, that it will shake out in that way. In this era, I'm not particularly bullish. Uh, basically, I think and and jurisdictions that don't do it are going to have jurisdictional arbitrage. Right. So so some smaller, more nimble jurisdictions, like maybe Singapore or something like that, they they have a higher chance of figuring it out quicker, and then maybe gathering some of that uh, over time. And so, That's for true. example, I, I I've talked to VCs that have said, you know, I'm I'm potentially going to have to move to Singapore, going to have to move to to whatever um, with their business or the and themselves to to do that. And it depends again on the space. So, for example, there are companies that only focus on Bitcoin. And for them, the regulatory path is rather clear. You don't you don't hear many Bitcoin VCs saying I might have to go to Singapore. It's it's more of those other ones that seem like they might they might be a security. Um, and and so overall, you want to strike that balance where you want to have a level playing field. You want to protect consumers, but you don't want to get in the way. And yeah, I'm not super optimistic, uh, but we have seen. You know, some of the times that this came up in Congress, like in the infrastructure bill, well, where kind of like as a small part of the infrastructure bill, they were going to kind of go after the crypto space. And you started to see pushback to make sure they didn't do mistakes. Uh, and some of the things that got through are arguably mistakes, but there's kind of a delay until they kick in. And now there are people from, you know, there's there's bipartisan support to at least figure this out. Like people are kind of saying, OK, this is a multi-trillion dollar industry. We can't drop the ball on it. Um, and so the, I think I think that, you know, politicians and their support staff are, are getting up to speed really quickly. So I'm not super optimistic, but it's it's clearly, you know, it's clearly a priority more than it used to be. 
So we've discussed privacy and how important it is and how various technologies can can impact it. And then we've also discussed regulation and the way the government should approach the task of establishing boundaries and barriers within a market. I, I note that in the materials you sent over, you said that you're very interested in the ethical valence of technologies and their potential to empower individuals as against states or other agents of oppression. So pulling back a little bit and considering the broader implications of what we've been discussing so far. How do you think about a technology's ethical impact? I mean, I know you're an investor. That's probably not something weighing on your mind all the time, but you, you must have some thoughts about how to think through the implications of a technology, how to predict where it will go, how to steer it so that it's more benevolent as opposed to oppressive. Yeah. And it's, and so for, for cryptos in general, this has been a really important topic to think through because they're, they're so controversial, partly because of their you know ethics around them and partially how, how the governments are going to respond to them. And so, for example, like I, I follow the work uh, of Alex Gladstein. He works for the Human Rights Foundation. Uh, and one of the things they do is they were early to catch on to see that that Bitcoin, for example, could be a human rights tool in, in some cases. Right. Right. So so early on, like any technology that's powerful, it basically the, it, it can power both bad people and good people. Right. Right. So the, the people that developed Bitcoin and had early interest in Bitcoin uh, you know, they're they're kind of uh, obviously there's a diverse group, but a general theme they had was, you know, science fiction for a while. As I'm pointing out that as technology improves and you combine surveillance with big data, you can have rather frightening authoritarian type of regimes with, with China being an example. And so you had kind of that that freedom tech side of things. Uh, and then, of course, you had Silk Road. So you had people using Bitcoin to buy drugs online. And it's kind of like how when the, when the pager came out decades ago. It was used by doctors, but it was also used by drug dealers. It was, it was rapidly used by drug dealers as an evasion tool. Um, and so it wasn't that the pager was bad, it's that it empowered, you know, it disempowered people in general, good and bad. And Bitcoin it has clearly gone down that route where some people are concerned because it, it can empower certain, you know, uh, uh, you know, either just either benign types of crimes or in some cases more serious types of crimes. Uh, but on the other hand, it's a tool that it empowers every, every user uh, in these more authoritarian type regimes. And so, for example, in Russia, you have oppression of journalists, you have oppression of political opposition, their bank accounts get frozen, but they, you know, Reuters would report that they would start turning to Bitcoin and, and using that as a way to, to finance themselves. You had in Nigeria, you know, people were protesting against police violence, uh, and then their bank accounts were frozen, and they would use Bitcoin. Uh, and so, you know, you have these kind of basically these different countries around the world that have all these different, you know, regimes and it's basically an empowerment tool to go around it. And the freer that a country is, the more benign that environment is, kind of the less they I think people are aware of that angle. Right. So they just look at, say, the energy footprint or they look at, you know, the fact that it can be can be used for crime or that it can empower certain problematic groups. Like there's an article about, say, neo Nazis using Bitcoin. They got the platform, so they use it. But it's kind of like any commodity because there's no restrictions on using it, it can empower some bad groups right. in addition to some good groups. And so I think in general, I, I always would side on things that like you can't you can't just repress technology because it might also empower some negative groups. Like when the internet was coming out, people were like, oh, it's gonna be used for for you know online gambling and porn and scams. And Which all of that was it is. All of that's true. <laughs> it's just that's a that's a small percentage of the the great things that it's used for, like our our podcast right now, right? We're we're able to have this conversation because of it. And so I think Bitcoin's like that in the sense that it, it's easy to focus on the negatives. 
uh, and those are always going to be there. Uh, but I think overall, it's a net good because it can be used, uh, you know, in a variety of ways. And so I often, you know, people often say that because they say it has an energy usage or because it still kind of has that lingering drug connection due to the Silk Road days, people kind of look at it as a sketchy investment. Whereas I say unironically that I think it's it's one of the more ESG friendly, you know, investments in my portfolio. I, I think that I'm more optimistic about that technology than than many of the other investments that I have. So if you ratchet forward 10 years, the, the year 2032, and and look at the whole cryptocurrency environment and uh, and relate it to national currencies and regulations and everything. How how do you see this transitioning, and what does 2032 look like? So that's something I still actively try to figure. Every day I kind of reset and just see what the trends are, right? Because you know people are notoriously bad at predicting the future they're, they're you know they're right. a very small percentage of people that seem to to have like a unusual ability to do it but for the most part things either turn out way slower than we thought way faster than we thought sometimes both like something turns out faster something turns out slower uh and so the way that i'm looking at it is that i see that different jurisdictions are going to have different speeds for different types of of technology and so for example china uh has moved very quickly on the on the central bank digital currency route uh, so that seems to be where they're headed. Uh, in the United States, because we have, you know, we have less of a political interest in doing that, and we haven't started research like China started research back in like 2014 for that. Uh, so they're way far ahead. I think in the United States, you're more likely to see regulated stablecoins, basically more like public-private partnerships uh, to have CBDC-like technology, uh, but it consists of private stablecoins rather than you know just purely being a nationalized government issuance, at least at least for the next few years. Um, and then I think you know you'll have kind of different countries using one or or both of those approaches, and then you know behind the whole thing you'll have these these you know uh, just purely private cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and stuff like that. That's it's purely bearer bearer asset. It's very hard to regulate. Uh, it's very hard to fully control. Uh, even though, of course, in the centralized hubs for it, they can do things like know your customer, anti-monitoring laws. They can kind of put that surveillance aspect on it, uh, but then it's always going to kind of be there under the surface. Even in China, where they ban it, there's still kind of tech-savvy people that can use it and go around some of those firewalls. I'm curious as to why you think that in the future, the United States will tend towards private stablecoins, because we are hosting George Selgin, I think next month or early in the uh, next month. And I was reading one of his articles recently taking apart the government's report on stable coins. And if I recall correctly, it, I may not have this exactly right, but it seems like there were a couple of different proposals being debated. One of which was private stable coin issuers. And another of which was something much closer to a, a state owned uh, CBDC that you would, sort of be forced to use and that would have obviously serious uh, privacy implications. So why do you think that it's going to be private regulated stable coins in the future, as opposed to just the fed issuing its own currency? So on a long enough timeline, anything could happen, including the fed issuing its own currency. I think the reason is that, that, that I have that view is because there's a lot of frictions to get there. And in this rather polarized environment, there are a lot of people that are opposed to it, partially for the privacy reasons, partially because they oppose, say, decentralization in general. Um, and we recently saw, I mean, one of the, one of the, um, uh, you know, uh, I forget what position she was being proposed for. Uh, I think it might have been the control of the currency, but I, I, you know, I'm not sure. 
but she had rather uh, strong views about central bank digital currencies. Basically, everyone has an account with the Fed, uh, and that you kind of just go around the whole banking system, and that was politically untenable, right. at least in, in this current environment. And so, because we have this rather split, uh, you know, just not just along party lines, but also just a bunch of different interests, it's really hard to to overhaul and centralize something like the way that say China can just move forward and just do it, right? So. Uh, and because of that, for for better or worse, sometimes you know you want to do something good and you can't get it through. Other times, it's good that you can't get something through because it's you know it, it could be all sorts of problems. But either way, depending on how you look at it, what you want, I think that just the reality is it's very hard to get something that sweeping through. And therefore, I think you're more likely to see uh, banks and bank-like entities just keep growing, keep building their their political clout because they have you know they become large donors. Uh, they become large economic forces, and they eventually shape laws that allow them to exist in some sort of regulated state, and that the government just kind of finds it easier to work with them rather than to just you know do their own thing. I'm really curious about a comment you made a, a little bit earlier that Bitcoin is the most ESG compliant asset in your portfolio. It has this reputation for being a spectacular waste of power. I don't really buy that, but I'm interested in your case against that. Yeah, I wrote a long form piece that, that kind of walk through its energy uh, uh, usage. And I find it interesting because, I mean, my background is electrical engineering. Uh, and I generally find that a lot of people that analyze it don't analyze it from a particularly technical point of view. Uh, it's often people like the journalists, for example, with nothing against journalists, but it's like a non-tech journalist kind of just talking about its energy usage. And there's very easy sound bites like, oh, it uses more electricity than Argentina and things like that. But there are other ways to characterize it one is that you can compare it to other industries. So it's very easy to compare any sort of large industry to countries, and it makes it sound like it uses a ton. But if you compare it to the amount of energy used by the zinc industry or the amount of energy used by you know, uh, uh, drying machines, right? It's not in, in the United States. It's not a very large in that sense. It's something like it's like 0.1% of global energy goes to Bitcoin and is paid for by those users. Uh, and one of the nuances behind how the Bitcoin network works is two things that don't get widely reported. One is it scales well. And so people tend to assume that it that energy use scales with market capitalization, uh, but it generally does not. And so over time, so the, as you know, everyone knows that there's going to be 21 million Bitcoins. Every four years, the number of new Bitcoins generated every 10 minutes gets cut in half. Uh, and so over time, when you look at, say, uh, you know, minor revenue, which is kind of the high, you know, it's kind of the, a way of measuring minor energy because, you know, they, they, they use their revenue to pay for their energy usage. Um, that shrinks as a percentage of market cap over time because essentially Bitcoin's inflation rate is going down. Uh, and so the, the amount that we spend on that distribution goes down. And so it does not scale uh, linearly with market cap. Uh, so that's one. And then two, a lot of, you know, Bitcoin has an incentive to find the cheapest electricity. And so if you are competing in the most like, you know, uh, densely uh, used en energy areas, uh, you're not going to be very successful in that field. And so basically they go and find stranded energy sources and use them. And unlike other types of energy, Bitcoin miners, uh, one is they can go to remote locations because they don't need a lot of bandwidth, like a data center, for example. All they need is an internet connection. Uh, and two, they don't need high uptime. Uh, any individual miner, can have rather spotty uptime as long as the electricity source is cheap enough to compensate them for that. 
And so, for example, you can have things like stranded oil fields where they produce some natural gas with their oil, uh, but it's not enough natural gas to build a pipeline. And so they, they just burn it away. They literally just they, they flare it into the atmosphere. And Bitcoin miners can go out there and say, hey, let's build a little metal shed and just take that natural gas and just mine Bitcoin with it. We'll, we'll make a profit. You'll make a profit. It's better than just wasting it. And so that's literally otherwise wasted energy. Or you know, if you look in China, part of the reason they had so much of the hash rate was that they overbuilt all this hydroelectric capacity. And it was in a region, you, you can only transfer electricity so far right. before you have too much losses. And so during the wet season, there would just be an abundance of electricity. And so these mobile miners would just go and just use the super cheap, abundant electricity. You see the kind of a similar phenomenon in parts of Canada, where they have overbuilt hydroelectric capacity, and it's either take it or leave it. And so over time, what we're seeing is that you know Bitcoin is a very unusual demand of electricity because it's it's flexible uh, and and kind of location independent. And so I think over time, what you're going to see, and you're already seeing this in, in places like Texas and elsewhere, is that it gets incorporated into electrical grid in a smarter way. And so they can structure contracts where they say, you know, we're going to get the cheapest rate of electricity that you have to offer. But in exchange, if there's any sort of uh, issue with with electricity production or you know, just sort of like a mismatch, like you're going to have a brownout between supply and demand, we'll be the first to shut off, right? Because we're, you know, unlike a data center, you know, we don't have a million clients screaming at us if we shut off for a day, right? right. So they, you know, they have that flexibility and we're already starting to see this build out over time that they can be the flexible uh, balancer because any grid has to produce more electricity than it consumes. Otherwise, you know, turning on the marginal laptop causes a brownout. And so you always have that extra extra capacity, uh, and you because you have to build for like say that the one day of the year where it's like 105 degrees and everybody has on their air, their air conditioning at the same time, you have to build for that day. And so most days, you know, 99% of days are not that day. Uh, but when that day comes around, it's really useful to have these these like um, variable sources of demand that basically pre-agreed to shut off. And so I think you're over time, you're gonna see them incorporated more and more intelligently into the grid and they end up not really competing with other types of electricity demand. So how, how much of a factor is the pandemic in your thinking about how the investments transition through this period? Um, as things open up, I mean, we've, we've dumped a lot of stimulus money into the economy and as things open up, uh, people can get back to work, but not everybody wants to go back to work and and all that. So, can can you step us through some of your thinking on how you um, integrate that into your investment strategies? Yeah, there's a couple there's a couple phases here, and so you know one of the phases was that even pre pandemic, I was analyzing that because there's so much debt in the system that historically, when you look at these very indebted environments, so in a normal business cycle, when there's less debt. When you counter a recession, there's a deleveraging event. So you basically, some companies end up losing money. They they default on their bonds. Some of the debt gets wiped away, and you kind of reset. But when there's so much debt in the system, it becomes untenable for that to happen. It's like this, you know, it, it would just kind of crash everything. And so when when debt gets that bad, uh, instead you have basically a, a they print more currency to fix it. Essentially, they instead of decreasing the the numerator. You increase the denominator, which is currency and, and nominal GDP with an inflation component. And so my view is that there's so much debt in the system that whenever we had the next slowdown, we were going to have a big increase in currency. And 
you know, I mean, I didn't expect the pandemic to happen, right? I mean, that was a that was a curveball. Um, but we 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 got the response that I expected, which was we increased the money supply substantially. And, you know, at first you could you could do a lot of it because we had a very disinflationary period. People were staying home. Now there was there were there were obviously supply bottlenecks. So for example, people didn't go out to restaurants, but they they went more to grocery stores. And we have like very specific supply chains around how we package foods that are not as easy to change as you think. Uh, but of course, over time, we started to adapt to that. Uh, but basically, we increased the money supply a lot. We increased demand. Uh, we held down energy usage for a while, especially jet fuel. Um, and, and But over time, as we open up, I think the issue is uh, a couple factors. One is you've a lot of people retired early. Uh, that you know we're kind of already thinking about retiring in the next five years, and they just said, "Well, I mean, this is all happening. I'm just going to retire early. I'll, I'll cut my expenses a little bit." Um, so that puts a lot more tightness on labor. Um, and then two, um, you have a, a, a productivity increase of more people working from home, more people you know finding they can get more done from home. Uh, also, some areas where you find out that it's actually really hard to work from home. That you really need that in-person interaction, that networking. Uh, and so the, the market's kind of sorting that out. But I think a big thing is that as the world opens more, as we get past these these waves of the virus, as it becomes more endemic, um, as we as as kind of lockdowns go away, our energy usage is coming back online. Uh, but we didn't really build more capex during that process. It's part of it's because oil companies, you know, for a long time, all this past decade, especially in the U.S. shale patch, uh, they basically would essentially light money on fire. They, they would drill for, for oil. It was not free cash flow positive at those, at those prices, and they still got rewarded for doing it. They, they, you know, they, the more that they promised growth, investors would pour money into it. Uh, but then over time, investors were tired of losing money. Uh, and then two, you had ESG concerns, right? So large pools of capital wanted to divest from the industry. So some of it was economic and some of it was environmental. Uh, and so now, companies are being very disciplined with their cash flows. They're saying, okay, so we have less access to capital. We want to be free cash flow positive. We want to, you know, only, only kind of drill when it's super positive, uh, uh, profitable to do so. And so overall, globally, have a much tighter uh, energy situation. Uh, and so I think that's going to be a, a significant kind of geopolitical factor and a big uh, contributor to inflation. Uh, and it's not going to be a straight line. Like even in the 70s, when you had that very high inflation, it was not a straight line. So in the mid 70s, you had a big oil spike and then you had a big downward move in a lot of commodity prices. Uh, and then later it built up and you had another big spike. And so I don't think it'll be a straight line, uh, but I think that this decade is going to be more characterized by energy shortages, uh, 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 more on the supply side than the demand side. But obviously that, you know, that increase in the demand post, post pandemic is what helps kind of bring it to the forefront. What has that meant for you portfolio-wise? How have you amended your investment strategy to account for those factors you pursue? So, so one is that I, I invested more in the energy space over the, over the past couple of years. Uh, and then two, I was very careful about buying high valuation companies that are, are valued based on the assumption of low inflation persisting into the future and very, very low discount rates that, that justify those high valuations. Uh, and so we, we've seen kind of a, a, a bloodbath in some of those very, very highly valued stocks that they might have great sales growth, they might have great balance sheets, uh, but they were just trading at such high valuations. And so generally in more inflationary decades, 
you have kind of a, a, a value stocks do somewhat better than growth stocks. Now, the value stock, yeah, you still have to avoid value traps, industries that are getting totally disrupted, uh, you know, things that are just kind of melting ice cubes. Um, but basically, slower growth, lower value co uh, companies actually do a lot better generally in inflationary environments than some of the really highly valued uh, growth-oriented investments. Uh, and so I think a portfolio that's more tilted towards commodities and value, that maybe not entirely, but just having that tilt, uh, I think is, is better positioned for, for this decade. So do you, uh, your own portfolio, do you have a certain ratio of, of cryptocurrency versus stocks and versus other investments that you like to maintain? And how has that changed over the last couple of years? Uh, for the most part, yes. So, so I have, like, for example, model portfolios that that I share with my with my um, uh, readers, uh, and those have specific allocations, specific percentage points for different asset classes. And over time, I have increased my my Bitcoin exposure. Uh, basically, you know, uh, a few years ago, I kind of made the argument that the you know someone's number can be very different about what is appropriate allocation for them, given the volatility and given the risks and things like that. But my argument was that it, we're kind of past the point where zero is, is the right allocation for most people. So even even one percent is is you know it's it's not zero. Uh, and I think that you know kind of the right number for a lot of people is one, and then to whatever number they feel comfortable with, you know, based on their level of research, based on their level of volatility tolerance. Um, and so I've kind of steadily increased that over time. For some of my personal holdings, because I take into account tax situation and things like that. Um, you know, I, I've let them grow to rather, I don't rebalance them really. I kind of let them grow and just kind of let that segment run. Um, and there might be times where it gets large enough that I decide to rebalance. Uh, but because, you know, it's, it's, it's different than, you know, I have a larger allocation now than I would if I was say just putting fresh capital in because it's partially it's based on that, you know, that long-term tax compounding, like let it compound before I take a taxable event. Uh, and so I don't necessarily rebalance that as quickly as I would if I was less bullish long-term on the technology. And then how do you feel about inflation in the, the next decade? So we've had a couple of guests on and gone back and forth on whether or not inflation is transitory or whether or not it's, it's here to stay. It's looking more and more like it's here to stay. How, where do you come down on that? And, and, and more broadly, how do you think about it? How do you model that? My base case is that it's, it's not transitory in the sense that I think that this decade is going to be on average more inflationary than the past decade. Uh, but that within the decade, there still can be cyclical transitory aspects to it, right? So when you have economic slowdowns, uh, when you have certain supply chain issues or commodity shortages be addressed, you can have temporary elite, like a, a you know alleviate aspects of the of this inflation. So like I said before, even the 70s was not inflation in a, in a straight line. And if you go back to the you know the the prior inflationary decade before then, which was the 1940s, again it wasn't a straight line. Partly because you had things like price controls. But also because just the, the the nature of supply and demand would, would change over time. Uh, basically, when when the price would spike, that could affect the economy. It could lower demand, uh, and then that could lower prices, and then you know increase demand again. Uh, and so, there's a couple ways that I think about it. One is, if you look over the long term, there's a pretty decent correlation with, with broad money supply and price inflation. Uh, and it's not a perfect correlation. Like I see people do the, these one-year correlation maps, and they say, "Look, there's very little correlation." Right. But it's like I, I do these rolling five-year correlations, and and you get a lot better correlation when you do that. And it's still not a perfect correlation, but it's clearly directionally useful to know. So so watching the money supply is important, 
And you know, in the current system, money supply is either created from bank lending, right? So home construction and then building, you know, loans against those homes, things like that, uh, or from large fiscal deficits, especially when they're when they're monetized by the central bank. So those are kind of the two primary mechanisms for for having an unusually high amount of of broad money supply growth, uh, which we've seen over the past two years, mostly from the fiscal side. And then the other constraint. So if you look at basically the way I would characterize that is rapid broad money supply growth is necessary but not sufficient for price inflation to happen. Um, so it's always there when inflation happens, uh, but sometimes you do have broad money supply growth without much price inflation. Basically, you have you have such strong deflationary forces uh, that even though broad money supply goes up a lot, you don't get an increase in prices. And so that's where you have to look at what I talked about before is like the natural resource cycle. So the CapEx cycle, what does the supply situation look like for energy? What does it look like for copper? Basically some of the electrification metals, what does it look like for copper, nickel, zinc, things like that. Uh, and so overall, I think because that looks a lot tighter and because I expect ongoing pretty high money supply growth, that kind of combines to give me a somewhat more inflationary outlook uh, for this decade than the prior decade. So I had all these questions about the gold standard and Dutch disease and financialization and Bretton Woods that I don't think we're going to get time to go over. But I did want to ask you if you were the architect of a new dollar system or a new monetary order, how would you approach the task of trying to set inject a certain amount of sanity into the way money works in the world? Uh, would, you, would you try to go back to a gold standard or maybe a commodity standard more generally? Do you think Bitcoin would be a sensible reserve currency? How would you approach the task of designing a new Bretton Woods so that we didn't run into the problems that the first one generated? So one is that you need some degree of decentralization in terms of more than one currency that can be used to buy energy. So the current system is based on the petrodollar, which was so after the Bretton Woods system failed, basically that the United States no longer could, could meet its obligations in terms of gold. So we severed the re redeemability. Right. Then you had this kind of three years or so of just kind of chaos. Like, right. you know, kind of the first time the entire world was on a, a fiat currency standard. And that, that was kind of recollected and organized three years later in 1974, which was the United States made deals with Saudi Arabia and other OPEC countries and said, look, you know, basically only sell your oil in dollars. So no matter who buys it, Japan, France, whoever buys it, only only sell it to them in dollars. And in exchange, we have the biggest military. We can protect the supply chains. We can make sure you're not invaded. We'll give you good arms deals. Uh, we'll give you good trade deals. Uh, and so we kind of maintain the system. And what it does is it makes it so that every country in the world needs dollars uh, if they want to import energy, which most countries do. And so they can either exchange their currency for dollars or they can start selling their goods and services globally in dollars. Uh, and then they can hold dollars in reserve. They can use it to buy energy. And then you start to get a network effect where, you know, let's say an emerging market wants to borrow money. People don't want to lend in their local currency usually, but because, you know, they can just create more of it. And so they want to lend in a, you know, quote unquote, harder currency, which is something they can't print at least. Uh, and so that could be dollars or euros. Uh, and But because dollars were the primary network effect at that point, dollars became the primary funding currency. Uh, and then you have all this dollar-dominated debt uh, around the world. And most of it's not even owed to the United States, ironically. It's like, owed, like you know, China could lend to an African country in dollars, or Europe could lend to a South American company in dollars. Uh, and so you know, neither the, the borrower nor the creditor need to be American. Um, and basically, the debt creates demand for that currency. So there's like $13 trillion 
in uh, identifiable dollar dominated debt held outside of the US. And all of that represents demand for dollars. And so you have this kind of self-sustaining network effect. And one of the things that does is that makes it so that the United States has to supply the whole world with dollars because there's, there's this insatiable demand for dollars. And the way that manifests itself is it makes our import power stronger and it makes our exports less competitive. And so we end up running these kind of structural trade deficits with the rest of the world, which kind of impacts groups differently. So it kind of impacted the, the manufacturing class uh, pretty negatively in the United States, not just against emerging markets like China, but also against Germans and, and Japanese, like other, other developed industrial countries. Uh, we, we've been less competitive, uh, but we've still been competitive in things like software, healthcare, financial services, kind of these higher margin types of industries. And the challenge there is that we've kind of hollowed out our industrial base probably quicker and more thoroughly than we, we should have. And so we're, we're vulnerable to things like pandemics and supply chain issues. And then two, we have more wealth concentration, more political polarization, because we kind of threw the blue collar class under the bus and then the white collar class got most of the benefits without most of the drawbacks. Blue collar class got some of the benefits, but a lot of the drawbacks. And so you have more wealth concentration, more political polarization. And in addition, the United States, you know, back when the petrodollar system was founded, it was, you know, the United States was like 35% of global GDP, and we were the world's biggest commodity importer. Over time, as you as you've seen the rise of Japan, as you've seen the rise of China, as you've seen the rise of other emerging markets, the United States is is a little over 20% of global GDP, and we're no longer the biggest commodity importer. Uh, and so basically the world has kind of in some ways outgrown the dollar. And it's the system's not really working super well for the United States anymore. And it's not really working well for some of these countries that say, wait a second, you know, if you're, if you're China, you're like, why am I using the second biggest country's currency to, to buy commodities when I'm the biggest commodity importer? Uh, and so we're starting to see more and more deals. I think the, the future way that it's going is that you're going to see more decentralization, more, you know, instead of one currency being used to buy energy, you might have two, three, or four major currencies used to buy energy. Um, and so I think that that's kind of the, 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 kind of the just the quickest way to start sorting this out and kind of neutralizing some of these imbalances longer term uh you know right now bitcoin is way too small to be used for something like a you know a global energy pricing asset um but you know if it goes to another 10 years of ongoing network effects uh ongoing you know improvements and more held by more people held by more corporations held by governments lower volatility uh if it goes up 10 or 20 times in market cap uh, then, yeah, I think it could be a serious contender for kind of a, a global reserve asset, something that that you know countries can hold to defend their currencies. Uh, that that say oil producers might want to take payment for uh, in exchange for you know international goods settlement. So uh, you know when you want to lend to a country, when you want to make international uh, transactions, but we're still rather premature for that. It's more like speculation at this stage, right? Uh, and you can kind of point to maybe the arc of where it could be heading. But there's a lot of tests and, and things that Bitcoin have to go through to get something like that. I don't really see us necessarily going back to a gold standard, although ever since the global financial crisis, you have seen an uptick in in gold held by central banks. And so I don't think you're you're going back to any sort of official gold standard. Uh, but I do think that that um, countries are diversifying how they hold the reserves, and so you've seen a little bit less focus on the dollar, a little bit more focus on gold. Uh, you see, for example, Russia, uh, you know, holding a little bit of yuan. 
Um, you know, over time, I think we're seeing a, a, a decentralization of reserve holdings and of payment agreements. Well, that is that is fantastic. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. Is there anything you want to leave us with in the closing minutes? Uh, I think that's the main thing. I think that so there's really good books to read, like The Fourth Turning or mm. Lessons of History. And a lot of what we're going through now can seem very unprecedented. And of course, it always is. I mean, we're, you know, we've never gone through this cycle with with this set of details and this level of technology and this level of, you know, with all the things we're going through now. But the world has gone through similar transitions in the past. So technological revolutions where everything changes in a matter of decades or monetary revolutions where what we what we view as money changes in a matter of decades or global realignment of you know what institutions kind of get knocked down and rebuilt and and social contracts kind of fall apart and then get rebuilt again uh, and I think that this is one of those environments where being familiar with history not just from 20 30 40 years ago but over the past century or more uh, can be really useful when navigating from a social perspective or just from context of kind of that we have been here before in some ways. Um, and it can kind of help you, I think, navigate it from a, you know, kind of a holistic point of view. In the final few seconds, what's that one investment tip that you can <laughs> give our listeners that they can, that they can make a move and walk away with a bloody fortune? Well, long term, I, I have no idea what it's going to do in six months, but I, I am bullish on Bitcoin, but I try not to give little tips like that. I think the main thing is to be, you know, some degree of diversification, some degree of of knowing what you own, right? So even if you do ETFs and things like that, you know, maybe just understand what types of companies are being held, what sectors, what regions. Um, and I think it's it's less about what's going to happen in six months or what's going to make you rich quickly, and more about what's going to compound over the long term, and what are the major tail risks you want to avoid, right? So. You know what are if you if you're are you too overweight in say just U.S. equities or are you too overweight in bonds, for example? I think I think it's more about avoiding major missteps than you know what is like the one hot investment ticket I can do to you know do well over the next year. <laughs> yeah. well, Lynn Alden, thanks so much. This has been great. Yeah, this is terrific. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.